want you to think back to a week ago. We were all so excited to get rid of 2020, and we were all thinking good things for 2021, right? Here it is a week later. I read this piece like two weeks ago where this one particular, it was an editorial, and the guy was saying we have to stop using the word unprecedented because it's, you know, this is getting old. I think we can keep using the word unprecedented. <laughs> wow. In the midst of all of this chaos, God is still blessing his people. Let us never forget that. Bill told you, all of you, that Leanne and I will be grandparents this summer. I can't, I can't tell you how thrilled we are about this, okay? Um, my grandfather, Albion Preston Bowers Sr., was 58 years old when I was born, okay? My first memory of him was when I was, when I was about five. He would have been about 62. Well, I turned 61 in a couple, in a, in a few weeks here. So my strong suspicion is, you know, effectively I am the same age that my grandfather was when I first met him, that I remember. Um, he was born in 1902, all right? And uh, by the way, my grandfather was the second Albion in the row. I'm the fourth. My son is the fifth. So this, it's, it's a recurring thing. I'll tell you that story another time. But um, this is about my grandfather being born in 1902. So he was 11 years old, almost 12, in the summer of 1914. He was living in Philadelphia with his parents, Elmer S. Bowers and, and his wife Mary, and uh, they were railroad people. Okay? And that's not who my grandfather was. He was inspired by the stories of the old explorers crossing the oceans in ships. So he's 11 years old now. For those of you who have kids that are about this age, keep this in mind. So he goes down to the docks and he signs on board one of the the last of the commercial sailing ships that are hauling cargo. He's 11 years old. He signs on as a galley boy. He lied about his age. They took him. And that summer, he ended up sailing between Philadelphia, Baltimore, uh, Providence, New York, uh, Boston, and Portland, Maine. And what they were doing was they were hauling lumber in a lumber schooner. They would go to the mill where all these planks would be sawn, and then these would be loaded down in the hold until the hold was completely full. Then they would stack the lumber on the decks about eight feet high underneath the sails on these ships. Then they would sail back and they would unload the lumber at these ports. Whenever there was a major maneuver that they needed to do with, with, the, with the ship, Everybody was on deck, all hands on deck, quite literally. And they were severely underhanded. Usually, they would have crews of seven to nine people in order to run these ships. And these are not small ships. 200, 300 feet long is typically what they were. They were schooners. 
And um, I remember my grandfather telling me this story. And as the summer began to close, near the end of the summer, 1914, World War I broke out. And all these sailing ships were prime targets. And so they pulled all the sailing ships back, and that was the end of my grandfather's sailing career. Here he is, he's, 11, he's not even 12 years old yet, and he's already been laid off from his first job. I remember him telling me this story. I learned to sail at about the same age that my grandfather did. I was about 12 years old when my dad taught me how to sail. By the way, my dad went to sea as well. He was U.S. Coast Guard. And uh, huge disappointment, I was never a professional sailor. Um, but uh, I remember when I was 14, and somehow we got into a group where we were actually doing boat deliveries for people. People would buy a boat in Marina del Rey and they'd want it to move down to San Pedro or Dana Point or whatever, or the other way. And they would call us up and they'd say, hey, I just bought this boat, can you move it for me? Here's where the slip number is, um, here's the owner's number, um, go get the keys, bring the boat down. And here's the slip that I have down at uh, Dana Point or wherever. And so we would move this boat. And there was this one morning, there were like five of us showed up. And uh, we were moving a 27-foot sailboat. And we were moving it from Marina del Rey down to San Pedro. And uh, we knew the wind would be very light that day. So we got there real early. It was like 1 o'clock in the morning. And so we're motoring out of Marina del Rey, 1 o'clock in the morning. And all the other guys went down below, picked out a bunk, and crashed. And my dad says, you've got the helm, you've got the watch from 2 till 6 a.m. I'm going to sleep in the companionway. If anything comes up, holler. I'll be on deck right away. So here I am, middle of the night, 14 years old, five people on board, four other people besides me. They're all asleep, and I'm the only one on deck, standing my watch. I remember stuff like that. Perhaps in another few years, I'm going to have to go teach another youngster how to sail. And then, I wasn't going to tell you guys this story. I was going to cut this this morning, but then Colleen selects Ocean. And there's a reason I love that song so much. Let's open with a word of prayer. Almighty Lord, our God and Savior, how great you are, Lord. Heavenly Father, when I read of your greatness and your beauty, I am overcome. And I know that even the greatest things that I can imagine about you fall so far short of who you truly are. Heavenly Father, we are so lost. The world pulls us back, and we are distracted. We are weighed down by sin and our failure to look upon you 
Heavenly Father, come down this morning so that we do not fall short. Grab us by our hearts. Carve your word on our hearts. Give us wisdom to hear the warnings of Isaiah this morning and to heed them. Give us discernment, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are still in Isaiah. I love it. Every week when I, when I have to put one of these together, and there's just pieces in here that are just so great, we are going to finish off chapter 10 today. And in this chapter, Isaiah pronounces judgment on Assyria's arrogance. And then the last half of chapter 10 is the hope and the promise of the remnant to return to God. And Isaiah counsels his people to wait upon the Lord. Just a quick refresher, Assyria is a nation, it's a city-state that's north of Babylon along the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. Today this is northern Iraq, southeast Turkey, and northeast Syria. Its capital is a city that you all know. It's Nineveh, okay? So um, this is where the emperor of Assyria lives, is in Nineveh. And for most of this period, the emperor is a man named Tilglath-Pilther III. We actually know quite a bit about him. His two successors after him are, we think, his sons. But there's a possibility that they actually were the people that ended up deposing him and putting him to death. Um, and the immediate successor, through the fall of Samaria, and what, this successor was the one that caused the fall of Samaria. And we think that's Shamanser V. And it's believed that Shemanser V was the son of Tilglath-Pilser III. But there's still some dispute over this. The fall of Samaria is described extensively in 2 Kings 7 and 8. But there's also a bit of it that's in the Apocrypha book, Tobit. So I'm going to read, from, read to you a short clip out of uh, 2 Kings 17, 1 through 7. In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hosea, the son of Elah, began to reign in Samaria over Israel. And he reigned nine years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Yet not as the kings of Israel who were before him. Against him came up Shemanser, king of Assyria. And Hosea became his vassal and paid him tribute. But the king of Assyria found treachery in Hosea, for he had sent messengers to sow the king of Egypt and offered, to, and offered no tribute to the king of Assyria as he'd done year by year. Therefore the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. And then the king of Assyria invaded all the land, came to Samaria, and for three years he besieged it. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Halah 
and on the Habor, the river of Gozan, and the cities of the Medes. All this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and feared other gods. Okay, that piece is out of the ESV. All right, and normally we use the ESV here. In the old tradition, the Apocrypha were translated with the Bible and were included. However, it has been the custom for the last 120 years to not include the Apocrypha. So to find this quote, I had to go back to the RSV, which was translated in 1895. So this piece is Tobit. And I want you to all remember, this is from the Apocrypha. So this is not from the canon of scripture. It is not to that same standard. However, I think it's instructive for you to hear what Tobit had to say about this time period. So this is Tobit 1, 1 through 6, out of the RSV. The book of the words of Tobit, the son of Tobiel, the son of Ananel, the son of Adul, the son of Gabiel, the seed of Asiel of the tribe of Naphtali, who in the days of Amanser, king of the Assyrians, was carried away captive out of Tisbe, which is on the right hand of Kadesh, Naphtali in Galilee above Asher. Okay, so Tobit is a prophet who is from the region of Galilee. I, Tobit, walked in the ways of truth and righteousness all the days of my life. And I did many alms deeds to the brethren and my nation who went with me to the land of the Assyrians, to Nineveh. And I was in my own country in the land Israel when I was yet young. All the tribe of Naphtali, my father, fell away from the house of Jerusalem, which was chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, that all the tribes should sacrifice there. And the temple of the habitation of the Most High was hallowed and built therein for all ages. And all the tribes which fell away together sacrificed to the heifer Baal, and so did the house of Naphtali my father. And I alone went to Jerusalem at the feast, as it had been ordained unto all Israel by an everlasting decree, having the first fruits and tents of mine increase, and that which was first shorn, and I gave them at the altar to the priests of the son of Aaron. Okay. So that's out of Tobit. With that as a background, let's start. We are in Isaiah 10, verse 5. And we're going to go from verse 5 all the way to verse 34, the end. So, Isaiah 10, 5. This is the judgment on arrogant Assyria. Verse 5. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. The staff in their hands is my fury. So here we have the rod of my anger. God uses the nations of earth as instruments for his will. All nations serve at the will of God, though those nations remain responsible for their acts. 
God's righteous anger continues against those who improperly administer God's kingdom corruptly or who abuse their God-given power. This is something we all have to remember. Kings and governments are all appointed by God. There's a reason that they are there and the way that they are put over the people. Sometimes it's really difficult for us to understand that. And perhaps some of you are, are feeling a little bit of anxiety with the things that are going on in our own government. I think here in a few weeks it will straighten itself out. Not that I am completely pleased with it personally in every way, but this is what we have. And things will straighten themselves out. But we are commanded to look towards God and not to the government. And this is something that we should all remember. And it doesn't matter who is running the country. We are commanded to look to God. Verse 6. Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him, to take spoil and seize plunder, and to tread them down like the mire of the street. God is sending the Assyrians against a godless nation. The godless nation is both Samaria and Judah. The Assyrians are commanded to seize the spoils of war and take the plunder, and then to tread down the Israelites as the mire in the street. Now I want you to imagine the mire in the street. They did not have sewers, so they would take their human waste in buckets and throw it out in the street. This is the mire that's in the street that's being referred to here. It's pretty graphic. Verse 7. And this is, listen carefully to this. But he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think, but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. So the meter and the rhyme of this particular verse struck me. It just stood out. It just jumped out at me. I've read enough Shakespeare to realize what Shakespeare is doing when he writes. And it appears that the writer Isaiah right here is doing something similar. So I had to go look it up in the Hebrew. If you translate the Hebrew word for word, this is what you get. But he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think. But it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. This is literally in English, a word-for-word translation out of the Hebrew. And the even more amazing thing to me is that the syllables match. And so you have a pattern of 7799. And it's the same in English as it is in Hebrew. It uses a perfect turn of the phrase. And an ancient reader of this scroll would hear and understand it exactly as we do today. The meaning is clear. They are unthinking and unfeeling in their actions. It is in their blind anger that the Assyrians destroy and cut off the many nations. So the commander of the Assyrian army says, For he says, Are not my commanders all kings? 
is not Kalno like Carchemish, is not Hamath like Arpad, is not Samaria like Damascus. I know that many of the young people do not use maps anymore. I have an entire shelf of atlases and maps. And I love maps. I love getting out maps and just covering the dining room table with a huge map and digging through it. And so when you start naming off cities like this, it's like, I need to get my map out. So I spent a lot of time digging through maps. So, the arrogance and the pride in self. The commander declares his own generals are to be as kings. Calno is a lost city supposed on the northern Euphrates River that fell in 738 BC to the Assyrians. Carchemish is an extant city in the same region, near the border between, Samaria, between Syria and Turkey today, near modern-day Aleppo, and it fell in 717 BC. Hamath is an extant city on the Arantes River in western Syria. This one is fascinating. This place was famous for its opulent hanging gardens. The photographs of this city today, the rooftops are covered in hanging gardens. There are literally vines hanging down over the sides of these five and six story apartment buildings. The gardens are hanging, literally, still today. Fascinating photos. Go, go look this up. It, it was just absolutely amazing to me. Hamath. Hamath is near Homs, in northern, and it's north of Damascus. And it and Damascus fell in 738 B.C. and 720 B.C. Arpad is believed to be a modern city called Tel Rifat, just north of Aleppo. Arpad was conquered by the Assyrians in 743 to 740 BC during a particularly long and bloody siege, three years. Samaria is the mixed culture Israel, Philistine, and Canaanite kingdoms north of Judea that fell in 722 BC. And of course, we know Damascus. Each of these cities were kingdoms. It's a funny thing about we think of kingdoms, we think of huge tracts of land. In the old days, when this was happening in the ancient world, the cities were kingdoms. So you can actually, some of these city-states still exist today. If you think about Monaco, Monaco is one of those city-states. San Marino is a city-state that exists completely surrounded by Italy. Not a part of Italy, it's its own country. The Vatican is also a separate city-state in the middle of Rome. And Singapore is an island city-state that still exists. So these kingdoms were all city-states just like this. Jerusalem was this way. And all of these kingdoms that we just talked about in the ancient times were captured by the Assyrian armies. And the commander takes a great arrogant pride in his accomplishments. Amos 6, 1 to 3. Amos 6, 1 to 3. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of nations to whom the house of Israel comes. 
Pass over to Kelna and see, and from there go to Hamath the Great. Then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms, or is their territory greater than your territory? O you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence. As my hand has reached... Okay, so you can hear what what Amos had to say about all these places and, and when they fell to the Assyrians. Okay, verses 10 and 11. Back to Isaiah. Isaiah 10, verses 10 and 11. As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols, whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? Assyria continues to boast of its great power, claiming to have overpowered the gods of these cities that they had just listed, and how puny Samaria and Judah are. Assyria is using intimidation here to terrorize the weak. Verse 12. When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. The king of Assyria is nothing before God. After God is finished with his will against Judah, the Assyrians will stand in judgment. Verse 13. For he says, By the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I have understanding. I remove the boundaries of peoples and plunder their treasures. Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on the throne. Here in verse 13, the God of heaven imposes his will on the Assyrians. Verses 13 through 19 are a restatement of what we've already seen in verses 5 through 9. That arrogance is brought low before the God of heaven. A couple of references about this. Dan 4, 28 to 33. Daniel 4, 28 to 33. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is this not great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as the eagle's feathers, and his nails were like the claws of a bird. Luke 12, 18 to 20. Luke 12, 18 to 20. Jesus tells a parable. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, 
and there I will store up all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. You notice all the way through there, not once did he say anything about who gave him all these blessings. Going on. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Very poignant message that we should all learn. Back to Isaiah 10, verse 14. My hand has found like a nest the wealth of the peoples, and as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth, and there was none that moved the wing or opened the mouth or chirped. God displays his power before the peoples of the earth. Shalmanser V crumbles before God for his multi-year siege against kingdoms with armies of hundreds of thousands. I should have looked up, there, there's actually a passage in here about what happens to the Assyrian army. I should have dug that out for you guys. Homework assignment, Bill, for next week, in case we have to switch. There's a story here. <laughs> All right. Verse 15 and 16. Shall the axe boast over him who hews it? Or shall the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? If a rod should wield him who lifts it, or if a staff should lift him who is not wood, therefore the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors, and under his glory a burning will be kindled like the burning of fire. Here, Isaiah is saying that Assyria is an implement of God's will. Assyria exists to punish corrupt Israel for wandering away from God. Assyria is itself a dark pit of corruption. So the arrogance of Assyria is punished as well. Verse 17, the light of Israel will become a fire and his holy one a flame and it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. The light is a reference that recurs in Isaiah over and over. The light is the blessings from God on Israel. And in this case, the light will save the city of Jerusalem from the Assyrians. This is out of Isaiah 2, 4 and 5. Isaiah 2, 4 and 5. He shall judge between the nations, and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. I was thinking about this when we were doing the table of the Lord. And I'm thinking the light of the Lord each time. Verses 18 and 19. And this closes out the, this section, by the way. 
The glory of his forest and of his fruitful land the Lord will destroy, both soul and body, and it will be as when a sick man wastes away. The remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. The mighty forests of the mountains of the land of Assyria are nothing before God. What man thinks is honorable and worthy, or what is thought of as despised, are not measured in the same way by God. God looks at things in a true sense, and we are colored by what the world thinks of these things and situations. So now we shift at verse 20, and from verse 20 to 34 is the remnant of Israel will return. So verse 20 through 21. In that day the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. So there's a series of references here. Joel 2, 3. Joel 2, 3. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Zephaniah 1, 7. Zephaniah 1, 7. Be silent before the Lord God, for the days of the Lord are near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. And later in Zephaniah, Zephaniah 2, 13 to 18. Zephaniah 2, 13 to 18. And he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. He will make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste like the desert. Herds shall lie down in her midst. All kinds of beasts, even the owl and the hedgehog, shall lodge in her capitals. A voice shall hoot in the window. Devastation will be on the threshold, for her cedar work will be laid bare. This is the exultant city that lived securely and said in her heart, I am and there is no one else. What a desolation she has become, a lair for wild beasts. Everyone who passes by her hisses and shakes their fists. So verse 22 and 23 here. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. Here in verses 22 and 23, the people of Israel will be swept away, and only a few will ever return. The sins of the people of Israel were so great. They merged the worship of God with the worship of Baal. They offered sacrifice to both, and they erected Baal idols on the altars of their synagogues. Truly, our worship of God is not perfect. Our understanding of God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit is incomplete. 
I do not believe that we have contaminated the worship of God by bringing out outside foreign ideas. Yes, we use English words like trinity to explain and make understandable the triune, unified, and perfect, yet three persons of God. And the evidence of what we mean is found within the canon of scripture. And we have very strong evidence that our translations of the ancient scrolls are accurate and true. We look back at the Dead Sea Scrolls and how well, there are six copies of Isaiah in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Four of them are incomplete, but two of them are nearly complete. And if you look at what we have today from Isaiah and you look at those scrolls, it is amazing to me how accurately this has been handed down to us through all these years. And the Dead Sea Scrolls existed 150 years before Jesus. The people of Israel are described as the sand of the sea by Isaiah. Genesis 22:17. Genesis 22:17. God is speaking to Abraham. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. The Lord God of hosts promises this. Isaiah 1.9, if the Lord of hosts has not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Something to think about this whole thing between Samaria and Judah. If you can imagine the Palestinians and Israel today, it's a similar sort of relationship between them. And so you can imagine what it was like between Samaria and Israel. And yet, deep down inside, they, they knew they were brothers. And so when Assyria comes, they both fought shoulder to shoulder to try and oppose the Assyrians. But it didn't matter for the Samarians. They were all swept away. Verse 24 and 25. Therefore thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. For in a very little while my fury will come to an end and my anger will be directed at their destruction. The Lord God of hosts will be bringing the armies of God and soon God will bring destruction to the Assyrians. Verses 26 and 27. And the Lord of hosts will wield against them a whip as when he struck Midian at the rock of Oreb and his staff will be over the sea, and he will lift it as he did in Egypt. And in that day his burden will depart from your shoulder, and his yoke from your neck, and the yoke will be broken because of the fast. So here in verses 26 and 27, the phrase is used, as he struck Midian at the rock of Oreb. And this is a reference from Judges. Judges 7, 24 and 25. Judges 7, 24 and 25. 
Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, which is Israel, saying, Come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them, as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they captured the waters as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. And they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. And they killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeb they killed by the winepress of Zeb. They pursued Midian, and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. And the Egypt reference is from Exodus. Exodus 14, 26 to 28. Exodus 14, 26 to 28. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. It didn't go well for the Midianites or for the Egyptians. Let's come back to Isaiah 10, verses 28 to 31. Big chunk four verses. And there's a reason these four are together. Remember I was talking about the map? Okay. He has come to Ayoth. He has passed through Migron. At Michmash, he stores his baggage. They have crossed over the pass. At Geba, they lodge for the night. Ramah trembles. <clears throat> Gibeah of Saul has fled. Cry aloud, O daughter of Galen. Give attention, O Laisha, O poor Anathoth. Madmenah is in flight, and the inhabitants of Gebim flee for safety. These are all the cities and towns that are on the road between Assyria and Jerusalem. So it describes a march through Israel from north to south. And this is the path the Assyrians took. Ayath means heap of ruins. It's in the north near Bethel. Migron is to the east and between Mizpah and Ramah. Today it's called Mata Binyam, Yamin. Mata Binyamin. Okay, Benjamin. And it is a disputed West Bank settlement today. Interesting. Michmash is now Michmas, south of Migron. It was famous for a battle between King Saul and his son Jonathan, because Jonathan was defending David at the time. 2 Samuel 13.2. Samuel 13.2. Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash in the hill country of Bethel, and a thousand were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. <clears throat> Geba is south of Migron. It's still called Geba today. It's about 10 miles north of Jerusalem. The name means heaps, or sheaves of grain. Galim was about seven miles north of Jerusalem. The name means rolls, 
apparently this city, they would roll their grain up and have these rolls of grain sitting out in the, in the fields. Interesting, we're talking about the table of the Lord and the grain today. And here it is. The Assyrians are walking through the bread baskets of Judah. Laish, Laisha, rather, was a town about four miles north of Jerusalem. Anathoth was the home of Abazer and Jehu, two of David's 30 mighty men, a town about three miles north and slightly east of Jerusalem. In 2 Samuel 23, 27, 2 Samuel 23, 27, there's the phrase, Abazer of Anathoth. And in 1 Chronicles 12, 3, 1 Chronicles 12, 3, the chief was Azir, then Joash, both sons of Shema of Gibeah, also Jeziel and Pelet, the sons of Azameveth, Barakah, and Jehu of Anathoth. Madmena is a lost town. It's assumed to be on the road between Aeth in the north to Jerusalem that is in the south, perhaps near Anathoth. And Gebim is also another lost town or city in the north of Jerusalem, perhaps two miles north of Jerusalem. Palti, the son of Laish, is from Gebim. In 1 Samuel 25:44, 1 Samuel 25:44, Saul had given Michal his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was of Galen. The march ends in verse 32 back in Isaiah 10. Isaiah 10, verse 32. This very day he will halt at Nob. He will shake his fist at the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. Nob is the last outpost before Jerusalem on the road from the north. Nob is within sight of the temple mount. It is the last stop before the mountain. From here you go up to the Mount of Olives, and then you cross over and climb up to the Temple Mount. You can see the Temple Mount from where this city was. Verses 33 and 34. Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down, and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. The height of the Assyrian Empire is portrayed as the great trees of the forest, as the cedars of Lebanon. Before the Lord God of the universe, it simply does not matter. The Lord's will is to stop Assyria, and so it shall come to pass. The Assyrians are like the trees of a great forest, yet before God they shall topple and be brought low. Verse 34 closes this passage. Chapter 11 explains why the remnant has to return. And we're going to talk about that next week. This is a very, very cool passage. We know that God promises to save his people. Redemption is already bought and paid for. We know this story. We just went through Christmas. We know this story. Redemption is bought for and paid who live under Emmanuel. 
And you can see how this lesson is for us, that we are the ones unworthy of God, just as Judah was. And we know we are unworthy. This is an image of us. We follow along with Isaiah to be a remnant, to heed the words of God, carrying the words of God in our hearts. Jesus is the one calling us to this. Jesus is the one who had to pay for our rebellion against God, our sin, and our unfaithfulness. It is God's plan. It is God who saves us. And Jesus is our Redeemer. Isaiah is pointing us back towards God. Isaiah says, don't look at the Assyrian army. Look at Jesus. This is the message of hope from God. Isaiah is telling us to change the way we live in the world. Isaiah wants us to be more like Jesus, to become more Christ-like by looking to God. And as we look towards Jesus, we become more like him. God loves us. I've told you before how many times I fail continually who I should be as a Christian. And God knows that I am not there yet. And again and again, I have to go on my knees before God daily. And yet God still chooses us. God, our daddy, father. God's greatness will be there for us to see on the day of the Lord. And we will all witness his greatness and his splendor on that day. And that shining city on the hill, the mountain of the Lord, the new Jerusalem, with no need of a temple, because God dwells there. And indeed, we continue to wait for Jesus to come. Let's pray. Almighty Lord, you are amazing and incredible. You've kept your words from Isaiah and sheltered them down through all these years for us to have your words today, down through the ages just to give to us. We thank you for this day, Lord. We thank you for all the gifts you gave us. Lord, as we look to your scripture from the prophet Isaiah, your truth today set our hearts free. Free us to believe your truth and to hold fast to you. Holy Spirit, enable us to trust in Jesus, who is the king of our saving faith, and to believe the words spoken of him under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, given and breathed out by God here. Heavenly Father, you have handed down these words for us from the prophet Isaiah. Help us, Lord, to be both hearers and believers of this truth and not to believe untruth. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.